Good evening, everyone. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Mike. I'm one of the ministers at St. Matt's. Um, now, I've got a PowerPoint presentation. I normally preach at Uni Church International. We have a lot of people who, for English, is not a, their first language, and so I'll have all the verses on screen, but I'd encourage you to use your Bibles instead of what's on screen when we come to the Bible readings. That would be really great. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we come to your scriptures now, please be generous to us. Please be gracious to us. Please drive ignorance from our minds and drive hardness from our hearts that we might know you better and that we might be shaped more into the image of your son Jesus. Amen. Well, I wonder what thoughts or emotions go through your mind when you see a book like this. This book is called God is Not Great and it mocks God. Or what thoughts go through your mind when you see this book? This is Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, in which he belittles and mocks the idea of God. Or what goes through your heart when you read articles online or in the newspaper dishonouring or mocking God? Well, I think Ezekiel 36, which we just read, is actually really helpful in helping us understand how God would want us to respond to that. Because in Ezekiel 36, God's name is being mocked and dishonoured by the nations. That's the first point from verse 16 down to verse 20. And the thing which is causing God's name to be mocked and dishonoured amongst the nations is that God's people are in exile. Verse 16 down to 19 is a really good summary of the exile, isn't it? Now have a look at verse 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight, so I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols." I dispersed them amongst the nations and they were scattered throughout the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. That's a really good three-verse summary, I think, of the exile. Israel, they had lived in the promised land with God, but they had turned away from God. They had started to worship idols and foreign gods and they had filled the land with bloodshed. We read about that in chapter 8. And so God removed them from the land. And he used Babylon to do that. Babylon defeated Israel and took them captive into Babylon where they are now living in exile, away from the promised land, away from the temple. And in the next verse we can see that it's it's that exile of God's people that has caused God to lose his honour amongst the nations. Have a look at verse 20. And wherever they went amongst the nations, so that's a reference to the exile, they profaned my holy name... For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. Uh, Now there's two words in that verse, profaned and holy, and if we don't understand what those two words mean, we are not going to understand chapter 36. Uh, So let's just clarify. The word holy, it simply means something that is separate, or set aside, or something that is unique, or set aside for a special purpose. And so for example, in the Old Testament, Uh, you might know that there was a holy shovel. 
That's how the Old Testament describes the shovel which the priests used to take the ash off the altar. Uh, Calling it the holy shovel didn't mean that that shovel was particularly godly or particularly Christ-like or went to church every Sunday. It just meant that that shovel was separate. It was different from all the other shovels. That's what the word holy means. Now, to profane something, profane means to take something that is holy, something that is separate, something that is unique and treat it as if it was common or ordinary. So you could profane the holy shovel in the Old Testament if you took it and you used it for an ordinary purpose like gardening or digging roses or something like that. That's what profaned means. And that's what God's complaint is in verse 20. Because God is holy. He's separate. He's utterly unique. But the exile has profaned him. It's made God look common. It's made him look ordinary. Now let me give you an illustration of how this is working. I want you to imagine that you're a Babylonian Uh, You live in Babylon and you've really backed the right horse because over the last few decades your empire has been really expanding and defeating more and more countries. And so you keep seeing captives arrive in your home city every time your country defeats another country. And one day you look out your window and you see a group of captives arrive from Israel and so you text your friend, Uh, this is legit, they had phones back then I'm sure, I want you to... I want you to imagine this conversation. I'm putting it on a phone so you can kind of see it. You text your friend and you say, hey, I saw a new group of captives arrive today. Where are these guys from? And your friend writes back and says, they're from Israel. And so you say, who is their God? And he writes back to you and says, I think they call him Yahweh. And you say, lol. (laughs) And then you say, gee, Yahweh must be pretty weak. He wasn't able to defend his people and keep them in the land. And look, I want you to look at the guy's response. Your friend writes back and says this. Yep, Yahweh is just like all the other gods of all the other nations that we've beaten. Our God Marduk reigns. You see that? When the exiles from Israel arrive in Babylon... The local people understand that to mean that their god Marduk has defeated Israel's god Yahweh and they assume that Yahweh is therefore just the same as every other god of every other pagan nation that they've defeated. They profane Yahweh's name. They treat him as if he is common or ordinary. He's not viewed as the unique creator of the universe. He's not viewed as the one and only God. He's viewed just like every other God of every other pagan nation which Babylon has recently defeated. That's what verse 20 means when it says, and whenever they went amongst the nations, they profaned my holy name. Why? Because it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. So you can see that the exile is causing God's name to be mocked and dishonoured amongst the nations. That's the first point. Uh, The next thing that happens in this passage is God decides to act to restore the name which is being mocked. He wants to make his holiness known. And that's what's happening in the next verses from verse 21 down to verse 23. You can look at it with me. God says, I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned amongst the nations where they'd gone. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says, 
It's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned amongst the nations where you've gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned amongst the nations, the name you've profaned amongst them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. So God is really concerned that the nations think that he's just like every other God and so he decides to act to sort of restore his name so that the nations can see God for who he really is. Just have a look at that last bit of the verse. The nations will know that I'm the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved wholly through you before their eyes. Now all the following verses are the things which God is about to do to prove his holiness. Right, and the first thing that he's going to do to prove his holiness is he will lead Israel back into the land. Look at verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. So you see the picture? That the nations will know that God is not like any other God when he leads Israel out of captivity in Babylon and back into their land. And that's not all. God is also going to make their life extremely prosperous. Uh, Have a look at verse 29. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace amongst the nations because of famine. But that's not all. God will also prove himself holy in the sight of the nations by cleansing his people. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. So God is going to forgive his people. He's going to wash away their sin and cleanse them of all their impurities. But that's not all. He's not just going to cleanse them. He's also going to transform his people so that they no longer sin. He's going to transform them by giving them a new heart and putting his spirit in them so that they obey and are never exiled again. That's what's going on in verse 26. Have a look at that. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So he's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. Now, heart and spirit is just, it's a Hebrew way of talking about the inner person, that kind of internal area of a person that generates all your aspirations and your motives and your attitude, all of the inner things which create your sort of outer actions. That's what Jesus is talking about when the Pharisees come to him one day and say, hey, Jesus, how come your disciples don't wash their hands? That will defile them ceremonially and Jesus responds with these words what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them whatever enters the mouth goes through the stomach and then comes out of the body but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them for out of the heart comes evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality theft false testimony and slander I hate, I hate the fact 
that no matter how hard I try, I always seem to sin. So no matter what I do, no matter where I run, I carry around a stony heart. See, I can never escape from sin because I constantly carry around with me in my chest the very thing which is the cause of all of my sin, the thing which creates my desires and motives that lead me into sin. I will never escape sin unless I can somehow get rid of my stony heart. You know, every six months I go around the outside of my house and I clean all the spider webs off uh, from around the house, but they keep coming back. And that's because the spider, which I can never find, that spider is the source of the web. And unless I can get rid of that spider, the webs are just going to keep coming back. I will never be free of the webs. And sin is the same. The source of my sin is my stony, hard heart. Unless I can get rid of that, unless I can get rid of my stony heart, I will never be free from sin. And Israel, they are the same. They need to get rid of their stony heart because otherwise they're just, they'll get back into the land but they'll just fall back into idolatry and sin and then they'll just get kicked out again. See, they're never going to be able to obey God fully by willpower alone. They actually need a new heart. They need to be internally renewed. And so God promises to actually do that. That's what he's saying in verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. And look at the result of this. This will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So they'll be internally renewed so that they don't sin, so that they don't get kicked out of God's land and his presence again. And what a wonderful promise. If you have ever been grieved by your sin and your complete inability to resist it. What a wonderful promise. And God promises to lead them back into the land and to bless their life, to cleanse them and to transform them, to give them new hearts. But here's the thing that I really want you to get. God does all of that, not for their sake, but for his sake. For the sakes of his holy name, which is being mocked and profaned amongst the nations. I mean, that's what the passage says, right? Pick it up with me from verse 32. I want you to know, says God, that I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land was laid waste and has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that will remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. If you want to kind of sum that up in a pithy little sentence, just have a look at the closing words of verse 38. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And that's the big picture of Ezekiel 36. 
God promises these things to, to lead his people back to the land, to cleanse them, to give them new hearts, to put his spirit in them. He promises all that, not for their sake, but for the sakes of his holy name, so that the world will know that God is holy, so that the nations will know that God is holy. And that's the point of Ezekiel 36. But I think at this point, there's a couple of common objections that would be helpful to sort of uh, deal with and air. I think the first objection is to say, gee, God seems kind of self-interested. He seems kind of self-centered. He, he doesn't do this for his people. He does it for the sakes of his own name. He does it so that the nations might know how great God is. Uh, well, there's a, a couple of things I want to say to that. I think firstly... It's worth saying that knowing God and how great he is, is the single greatest treasure that the universe has to offer you. And so if God acts in a way that people might know how great he is, God is acting in a way to give people, I think, what is the greatest gift that the universe has to offer you. Uh, Secondly, can you actually imagine Israel saying that objection? Can you imagine Israel saying, gee... God's only doing this for the sakes of his name. It's got nothing to do with us. Fine, I'll just stay in exile, you know. They'll never say that. They are being amazingly blessed through this. And that is, of course, what happens when God's name is known. People are always blessed when God's holiness and greatness becomes known because that is the greatest thing in the world. Uh, I think there is a second uh, common objection, and it's a kind of it's an objection that I had when I first read the passage. Uh, I think the uh, the second objection is to say that this passage, it's a little bit like one of those nailed it memes that you see on the internet. Uh, a nailed it meme is where you see a picture, someone takes a picture of some beautiful sort of cake which they see in the glossy pages of a cookbook. You know, like these cookie monster cupcakes. But the actual cake they end up making, well, it doesn't quite look the same. <laughs> the promises held out on the glossy pages of the cookbook, it doesn't quite match the reality of what they end up with in their hands. And so they take a picture of their attempt and they sarcastically write, nailed it on the photo and they put it on the internet. And I think the second objection is to say, that's actually what Ezekiel 36 feels like. Because it feels like the promise that God holds out on the glossy pages of Ezekiel 36, it just feels like it hasn't been met in fullness. Because in a few decades' time, God does start to fulfill this promise. In a few decades' time, Babylon crumbles and God does lead Israel home, back into the land. And they do start to rebuild Jerusalem and they do start to plant their crops again. And Israel's life, it starts to look like this gorgeous promise of Ezekiel 36, except it's actually just not as good. Israel, they don't seem to be cleansed. They don't seem to have a new heart. They don't seem to have God's spirit. They continue to sin. Their crops aren't as abundant as what the vision says. The vision says it will be like the Garden of Eden, but that's not the reality that they come home to. Israel's life, it starts to look like one of those nailed-it pictures. It looks similar to the promise of Ezekiel 36, but it's just not 
as good. And that's because there was a greater fulfillment of this promise still to come. Because 600 years later, after Israel had moved back into the land, there came a greater fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because when Jesus died upon the cross, he took the punishment for his people's sin. He cleansed them of sin. And after his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit to live in his people, to prompt them to obey God. And those who believe in Jesus now, if that's you, you have a new heart. That's why the New Testament refers to Christians as new creations, because we have new hearts that are fleshly, that are actually, it's possible for them to respond to God and the Holy Spirit's prompting. See, in Jesus comes a much greater fulfilment of Ezekiel 36 than what Israel first experienced when they got led back into the land. But let's just pause here for a moment and have an honest uh, reflection with each other. Even then, it actually still feels like one of those nailed-it pictures, doesn't it? Because even after Jesus, even now as a born-again Christian with a new heart, even now with God's Spirit living in me, my Christian experience, it still doesn't match up to the gorgeous and glossy picture of Ezekiel 36. I mean, sure, I mean, I have a new heart now, and the Holy Spirit prompts me to obedience, but the reality is I still sin. Ezekiel 36, it still feels unfulfilled to me. And what about the promise of living in a land with abundant trees and, and crops and fruit and that's like the Garden of Eden? That doesn't feel like my life. I live in the northern suburbs. Look, if we are honest, this passage, even now after Jesus, when we compare it to our life, it still feels radically unfulfilled. It still feels like one of those nailed-it pictures. And it's supposed to, actually. Because there is still a greater and greatest fulfilment to come when Jesus returns. See, before believing in Jesus, my heart was completely stony, unable to respond to God. After believing in Jesus and by the work of the Spirit, my stony heart has begun to soften, has begun to become fleshly. But it won't be fully a heart of flesh until the day that Jesus returns and completely does away with sin. Think of it this way, it's like my heart transplant started when I believed in Jesus, but he's not going to finish it until he returns. Sure, I have the Holy Spirit in me now, but I am still sinful. I'm never going to be free from sin. I'm never going to fully obey God until Jesus returns and finally and fully deals with sin. And when Jesus does that for people... You know, he also does it for the whole creation. Because ever since Genesis 3, the whole creation, the physical world has been under a curse of sin. Crops fail, rivers flood, earthquakes destroy. But when Jesus returns and does away with the curse of sin, he brings with him a whole new creation, a whole new world, recreated and free from the effects of sin, And only then will I live in a place like Eden. 
Only when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom and the new creation, only then will Ezekiel 36 be fulfilled in all its glorious glossiness. So I think it's actually, it's really helpful, I think, uh, to realise that it's quite common for an Old Testament promise to have multiple and increasing fulfilments, even though it looks like one promise to the prophet who records it. Uh, let me give you an illustration that over the years has really helped me. Um, this here, that's a picture of a mountain over on the east coast of Australia. Now that photo was taken from the front of the mountain range. Uh, so it looks like one mountain. What you can't tell from the front is it's actually two kind of separate peaks. You can only see that when you look at it from the side. Now, Old Testament promises are often like that. See, when Ezekiel describes the view of God's promise, he's looking from the front. He's looking down the line of the mountain, down the line of history, and he describes what looks like one promise, but it actually has three fulfillments. So we actually need a mountain with three peaks, so I photoshopped a third peak in. (laughs) Nailed it. So what, what Ezekiel sees is the picture on the left. This is what Ezekiel sees, right, in chapter 36. It looks like one promise. One promise to bring Israel back to the land, to make their life prosperous and fruitful, to cleanse them from sin, to give them new hearts and a new spirit and to move them to obey. But from the side, from the side, the first peak or first fulfillment is when Israel get led back into the land There's a second peak or fulfilment when Jesus comes to die and to rise and to send the Holy Spirit and to cleanse people from sin. But the third and greatest peak, the third fulfilment, is when Jesus will come back in the future, bringing a whole new creation. And it's only on that day, the third and greatest fulfilment of Ezekiel 36, it's only on that day that we will experience the glossy and glorious picture of chapter 36. And here's what I want you to get. It's only on that day that God will stop the mocking and the profaning of his name. Because it's on that day, the world will actually see God for how holy and awesome he really is. And that's Ezekiel 36. And how are we supposed to apply that? Well, I think you could apply it by saying, uh, well, look, there is a day coming when we are going to experience the great fulfilment of this promise. There's actually a day coming. If you're a Christian, there is a day coming when you will be fully cleansed of sin, you will have a fully new heart, that you will be moved to fully obey God, you will no longer sin, and you will live in a creation free from the effects of sin. And it is going to be absolutely indescribable. It's going to be glorious. I mean, can you imagine living and relating to people without ever experiencing the shame of sin ever again? Ever. And do you feel the hope of that? Do you feel the joy of that? It's great. That's actually going to be our experience. Now, there's nothing wrong with applying uh, this passage that way because that is true. That is what our experience will be. That's what we're heading for. There's nothing wrong with it. But I do think there's a slight problem if that's our application. 
you see the problem? The problem is we just made the application all about us. But this passage is not actually about us. It's primarily about God. See, God doesn't make this promise primarily for us. He actually makes it for his holy name. He makes it so that the world would see how holy, how awesome God is. Or in the closing words of this chapter, God makes these promises primarily that they would know that I am the Lord. So surely our application must be primarily about God and the honour of his name. And so that's why I asked you at the start of this message how you respond when you see books like this, God is not great or the God delusion or how you respond when you see articles online that mock God. See, I think on one hand, it should upset you. God's name is being profaned in these publications. He's being mocked. That should upset you. But you know what? If you get Ezekiel 36, it might upset you, but it really won't worry you. It won't scare you. It's very easy, I think, to react to the popularity of these books with sort of a feeling of defeat or of depression. But in Ezekiel 36, God promises that his name will not be mocked forever. And that should really shape the way that we respond to books like this. Because you don't need to be scared or afraid when a book like this becomes a New York Times bestseller. You don't need to feel hopeless or defeated when God is consistently mocked in our media. Because we know that God has promised that his name will not be mocked forever. I think Ezekiel 36, it actually allows you to engage with these kind of books without feeling sort of intimidated or depressed about it. It frees you to engage with it without becoming, sort of, you can become upset, but without becoming angry or overreactive. But you're never going to feel that way unless you get Ezekiel 36. Because in Ezekiel 36, the world is moving closer to that third and final fulfilment of God's promise. Where the mocking voice of this world that says God is not great will fall into a stunned silence as they witness God gather and cleanse and transform and give new hearts to his people and display how holy he really is. You know, we have a song that we sing uh, sometimes called We Belong to the Day. And in that song, there is this great line which really sums up Uh, Ezekiel 36, it describes that great and final day with these words, the world in its turning stops to marvel at the Son of God. It's a line that really captures Ezekiel 36. It captures the idea that a day is coming when the world will witness God's holiness, when it sees God gather and cleanse and give new hearts to his people, give them a prosperous future in a brand new and perfect creation. And on the day the world witnesses that, they will know God's holiness. Or in the closing words of Ezekiel 36, they will know that I am the Lord. Amen.